In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Since all of you are Sunday school servants, and we are responsible about teaching in the church, uh, that's why I like to speak with you today about the characteristic of the Orthodox teaching. And when I say Orthodox, I don't mean it as denomination Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, for example, but I mean Orthodox means the right teaching, the correct teaching, the right way to teach and glorify God. Especially in James chapter uh, 3, St. James said in verse 1, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. So he said, you should know, if you are teachers, you will receive a stricter judgment than the rest of the people. Why stricter judgment? At least for two reasons. The first reason, because there has to be harmony between your teaching and your life. Don't be like the scribes and Pharisees who teach something, but their life is contradictory with the teaching. They teach people to pray, but they don't. They teach people to love, but they don't. They teach people to forgive, but they don't. So God expecting from us, the teachers, to live what we are teaching. When we ordain a priest, at the end there is a commandment that the bishop reads to the priest. In this commandment we say to the priest, you need to teach by your works more than by your words. So people should see in me as a clergyman the love, the forgiveness, the wisdom, the patience, the endurance, more than just preaching these virtues by my own mouth. So we as teachers, we will receive a stricter judgment. Because God expecting from us to live what we preach. But another thing, now you are responsible of giving the knowledge to the people. So if you are teaching wrong knowledge, wrong doctrine, wrong interpretation of the scripture, then those who hear you and are misinformed by your teaching, you are responsible for them. Before God, you will give an account because it is because of you they were misinformed. Because of your wrong teaching, these people are misinformed. That's why you need to be very careful before teaching. And you need to make sure that what you are preaching is the truth with capital T. What you are teaching is the word of God as he intended it to be. There is no place for personal opinions here. Now, you are listening to me, not to listen to my personal opinion. 
But you want to listen from me the words of God. What God is preaching and what God is teaching. Some people use the teaching to give hidden messages. For example, you don't like one of your students, so you use the opportunity in teaching to send this student message or to expose him in front of the people. If you are doing this with a bad intention, you will receive a stricter judgment. But if you are doing it, as the, the Lord Jesus Christ was saying parables about the scribe and Pharisees, wanting and desiring for them to repent and to return back to God, then this will be commendable. So, St. James make it very clear that if you are a teacher, you will receive a stricter judgment. You need to be careful. That's why I like to speak to you about what are the characteristics of the correct teaching, orthodox teaching. Number one, this teaching should be biblical, based on the scripture, founded on the scripture. Because the word of God is truth and life. Today, for example, uh, when I'm speaking about teaching, I referenced St. James chapter 3, when he said, we shall receive a stricter judgment. So when I am saying we will receive a stricter judgment, it is not my opinion, it's not my words, but this is the word of God in the scripture. So make sure that when you prepare a lesson, you need to reference every idea from the scripture. Every point you are going to say, you need to have reference from this point to from the scripture. As much as you can. If you're going to speak about 10 points, then each point you should have at least one reference from the scripture. Either a story or a verse, or a teaching, or a quote, but make your teaching founded on the Word of God. Number two, patristic. Patristic means based on the understanding of early church fathers. Why? Now, actually, there are tens of thousands of denominations. And all of us are using the same text. But we have different understanding of the same text. Orthodox Christian, they understand the text in a certain way. Roman Catholic, they understood it different way. Baptist in a different way, Presbyterian different way, and so on. Why we are so different? We are different in the interpretation, in how to interpret these verses. Then the question, who is the correct interpretation? Who has the correct understanding of the scripture? I want to answer this question in objective way. Not because I'm orthodox, I will tell you the orthodox church has the correct interpretation of the scripture. I'm not going to say this. 
Because if I say this, somebody may challenge me and tell me, you are saying this because you are Orthodox. If you are Catholic, you will say the Catholic. If you are Baptist, you will say the Baptist understand. So we know as a fact, the first split in the church happened in year 451. So before 451, all the Christian in the whole world had the same understanding of the scripture. Whether in Egypt, or in Rome, or in Antioch, or in Constantinople, or in Jerusalem, wherever you go, you will find all the Christians have the same understanding. And thank God that this understanding of the scripture is recorded to us in what we are saying early church fathers. Early church fathers like Saint Athanasius, like Saint Cyril of Alexandria, like Saint Basil, Saint Gregory, Saint John Chrysostom. All the fathers who actually made commentary on the scripture before the spread of the church, before 451. So if there is a point of difference, for example, the Protestant, they say the Eucharist is not real body and real blood. It is just a commemoration of the communion. So what we are eating is just a bread and wine. But the Orthodox, we Orthodox, we say no. This is indeed the body of the Lord, and this is indeed the blood of the Lord. So we have two different interpretations of the Eucharist the Protestant and the Orthodox. Who's right? Is the Protestant right? Is the Orthodox right? Who's right? So if you go to early church fathers and read what they wrote about Eucharist, what they wrote about communion, if they say it is just a commemoration, it's not real body and real blood, then the Protestant are right and the Orthodox are wrong. If they say it is real body and real blood, then the Orthodox are right and Protestant are wrong. Because at that time, all of us were Christian. There was no Orthodox or Catholic or Protestant. These names came later on to differentiate each group. So when we teach, we need to support our teaching by quotes and writings of early church fathers. So if I'm going to speak about communion, I will quote the homily of St. John Chrysostom, in which he said, don't you know what you are eating? You are eating the body of the Lord and drinking his blood. Then St. John Chrysostom said so. St. Cyril of Alexandria said the same. St. Athanasius said the same. Then the Orthodox understanding of communion is the correct understanding. Not what other denominations teach. It is just a memory. No, it is not. Because the church for almost five centuries understood communion as real body and real blood. So it is very, very important to support your teaching from 
the writing of early church fathers. Number three, your teaching should be based on also what we call the holy tradition. And tradition with capital T, holy tradition. What do I mean by holy tradition? Not everything was written in the scripture. Scripture, yes, has many things written to us, but not everything is written in the tradition. Uh, written in the scripture, I'm sorry. But certain practices were given to us through the holy tradition. For example, how we pray on the bread and wine to be changed into the body and the blood. You will not have in, in the scripture text for the divine liturgy. But the early church fathers, they wrote to us the divine liturgy. Like St. Basil wrote to us St. Basil liturgy. St. Gregory wrote to us St. Gregory liturgy. And St. Mark wrote to us a liturgy that was updated by St. Cyril of Alexandria and we call it St. Cyril liturgy. So now we know what are the prayers we pray in the divine liturgy. Now we know what are the prayers we pray on the water in order that the Holy Spirit may descend on this water and this water has, will have the capability to give new birth to the person who is baptized. The church fathers, early church father, said when we anoint somebody with the holy Mayrun, it has to be 36. You will not find it here in the scripture. But it is a tradition handed down from early church fathers to us. That's what we call the tradition. Maybe somebody will ask me, why should I trust the tradition? Why should I trust the tradition? Who came first? The tradition or the Holy Scripture? Let me explain. In the first century, many Gospels were written. Some Gospels written by authentic authors like Matthew, Mark, Luke, Joe. But some people wrote Gospels and to give it some credibility, they mentioned this Gospel is the Gospel of Thomas, for example. Gospel of Barnaba. So we have many Gospels. Gospel like Mark, Matthew, Luke, John, and other Gospels like Thomas, like Barnabas. Barnabas. Who decided that these four Gospels are correct, but the Gospel of Barnabas is false? Who decided? The tradition. The holy tradition told us don't read the Gospel of Barnabas. It is false. Barnabas did not write this book. The author of this book, to give credibility to this book, he gave it the name of Barnabas. But it is false. 
So the whole tradition, we can't trust it. Because again, the whole tradition was the same in the whole world. Among the all churches in the world. So, when you teach, you need to teach based also on the holy tradition. Some people will try to challenge the holy tradition. For example, from the time of the Lord Jesus Christ until now, or until 50 years ago, we never heard in any church, even after the split, even after the, the split of the church, the division of the church, that a female became a priest or a bishop. Saint Mary, the mother of God, who is higher than the Cherubim and the Seraphim, was not a priest or a bishop. So when somebody comes in other denominations and make the female priest and bishop and archbishop, we cannot accept this. Because the holy tradition, plus early church fathers, plus the scripture, there is no any reference to the priesthood of women. So if somebody told us that you need actually part of the human rights and the equality, you need to allow women to be clergy, we will say no. Is this discrimination against women? Absolutely no. But different function. Different function. Women are called to certain function, men are called to certain function. Like in your body, as St. Paul explained, you have the eye and you have the ear. If the ear said, no, I want to see like the eye, and the eye said, I want to hear like the ear, your body cannot be all of it eye or all of it ear. Both of them are equally important. There is no discrimination against the ear because the ear cannot see. There is no discrimination against the eye because the eye cannot hear. They are equally important, equally honored, but different function. That's why God created two genders. If there is no need to different functions, then God would create one gender. But the fact God created two genders because there is different mission for this gender and different mission to this gender. But both of them are equal. Holy tradition, until maybe 20 years ago or 30 years ago, we never ever heard a church, even after the split, we never ever heard a church, Protestant or Catholic or Orthodox, married two men or two women. Never ever happened. The Holy Scripture does not approve this. The early church father spoke against it. The Holy Tradition, there is nothing mentioned about this. So when now some churches teach it's okay to bless same-sex marriage, it is heresy. It is false teaching. 
It's against the ordinances of God. And those who are teaching this teaching and those who are blessing same-sex marriage, they are false teachers. And God will hold them accountable. Because they are not honest to the truth of the scripture. So, the holy tradition that tells us what's right and what's wrong from the practice of the church is very, very important. Don't yield to the pressure. Don't yield to the pressure of the feminist movement to pressure you to demand and to fight for priesthood of women. And don't yield to the pressure of the homosexuals who want to marry inside the church. St. Paul said, if I please men, I am not a servant of God. As a teacher, you are representing God, not people. You are teaching the word of God, not the words of the people. Number four, so we said the teaching should be biblical, patristic, traditional. Traditional with capital T. Number four should be theological. Theology is the knowledge of God. So, when you teach, you need actually to teach about God, to give the people the knowledge of God. In John chapter 17, at the end of the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, this prayer actually, he prayed on Covenant Thursday, before he was arrested and tried and crucified. So the Lord in this prayer, he said, In John 17, verse 6, he said, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. Manifested means I have taught them about your name. I have taught them. In verse 14, he said, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Also, uh, he said in verse 26, I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them. So it's our responsibility to teach the knowledge of God and to make our students to be connected with God to have a personal relationship with God. Because through this knowledge, they will love God. As he said, as the Lord Jesus Christ said, and I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Some people in their teaching, they teach morals, but with no reference to God, with no reference to the relationship with God. These morals you cannot have and you cannot achieve. These morals and virtues you cannot live 
unless you have a strong relationship with God. So the purpose of every lesson at the end is to make your students connected to God. They learn about God, then the love of God will be in them. And they will love God also. We need to teach our children about the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And to teach them how to make relationship with the Father, how to make relationship with the Son, how to make relationship with the Holy Spirit, and how these three hypostases are one. We cannot imagine the Father without the Son and the Holy Spirit, or the Son without the Father and the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit without the Father and the Son. You need to teach your children about the divinity of Christ. Many people who are casting doubt on the divinity of Christ. You need to teach your children about the existence of God. Many people nowadays, they don't believe in the existence of God. They are atheists. We need to teach our children about creation, not the evolution that we are studying in the schools and confusing them and corrupting their mind. We need to teach our children about the theology of the incarnation of the Son of God, why God became man, and how we are saved. And is there any way to be saved other than believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? Our students are very, very poor in this knowledge. I remember during one of our high school conventions that was attended by maybe 250 persons. We made a question, asked them a question to answer yes or no. That's it. This question was, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to eternal life? And the answer was shocking. Only 37% said yes. Which means there were 63% believe that it's okay not to be Christian and you will be saved. It's okay to reject Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What is the role of Sunday school here? What is the role of the families and the houses? Did they teach the correct theology to their children or not? So don't make your lesson just moral preaching. You are speaking about honesty, speak about purity, just a virtue without explaining theology, the knowledge of God and defending what you are saying from the scripture, from early church fathers. Number five, your teaching should be also a spiritual teaching, aiming toward growing in the spirit, aiming that each one listens to you will grow 
in his relationship with God. That's what we call transforming teaching. Teaching that has the ability of, of transformation. Teaching that can change the hearts of the people and the student to return back to God. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. So when you pray before you teach and ask the Holy Spirit to anoint each word you are saying and to accompany each word to pierce the heart of the people. You know, St. Peter in the book of Acts, he gave a sermon you can read it in Acts chapter 2. After this sermon, 3,000 persons came to Peter, told him, what should we do? And Peter told them, repent and be baptized, because the promise is for you and for your children. And on that day, 3,000 men and women joined Christianity, converted to Christianity, believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and were baptized. You can have PhD in theology and you can have PhD in biblical studies. But if you don't pray and if you don't have the Holy Spirit working powerfully in you, your words and your teaching will be just lectures, but void of life, has no power of transformation. But when you have the knowledge, but this knowledge, you put it in front of God in prayer and asking God to anoint your words, then when you are preaching, you are relying on the work of the Holy Spirit that fills your heart and your mind and your soul and your spirit. Your words will be powerful. Your words will be transformational. It will have, your words will have the effect of transforming the heart of the people to return back to God. I like what I read in the book of Acts about St. Paul when he was speaking to Felix the governor. When he heard the words of St. Paul, he was terrified from the day of judgment. But unfortunately, instead of using this opportunity in which the Holy Spirit was knocking and piercing his heart to return back to God, he said to Paul, go now, and when I have time, I will call you again to listen from you. But the words of St. Paul were so powerful because these words were anointed by the Holy Spirit. These words pierced the heart of the government. Number five, no, sorry, number six. We said biblical, patristic, traditional, holy tradition, theological, spiritual. Number six, liturgical. Liturgical. Liturgy is like the three divine liturgies, St. Basil, St. Gregory, St. Cyril. But also, liturgy is any communal worship. Because liturgy has, is composed of two words, laos, which means people, community, urge, which means work. 
So when we assemble together and worship God, it's liturgy. So the holy matrimony is liturgy. The unction of the sick is liturgy. The baptism is a liturgy. I can say also that the toxologists, the midnight praises, the theotokias, their words are full of teaching, doctrine. So when you preach, you need to support your teaching from quotes from the divine liturgy or from the prayers of the matrimony, prayers of the uh, baptism, prayer of the unction of the sick, prayers of the midnight praises, whether the theotokias or zoxologists. Because all the treasure of the church are hidden in the liturgical texts. You can understand most of the Holy Scripture from the liturgical text. So it's beautiful when you preach, you support what you are saying from the liturgy. This actually will make the students love the liturgy and enjoy the liturgy. When they come to the liturgy and hear what you already taught them, so they can connect with the liturgy. The liturgy will not be uh, something uh, mysterious, not understandable, but it will be clear for them. For example, when you explain to them that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the whole world. So you explain to them how in the divine liturgy we see this is done in front of our eyes. You know Abuna, when he takes the censor and senses the people during the Pauline letter and the book of Acts reading, this time while Abuna is passing next to me, this time is time of confession. I ask God actually to forgive my sins and to confess your sins before God. I have sinned in this and this. It's not a replacement to the sacrament of confession, but in addition. And Abuna after, as if Abuna is collecting your sins in the censor. Then he goes on the altar and raises the incense above the altar and says, O oh God, who accepted the confession of the thief on the cross, accept the confession of your people. Then Abuna, before the institution narrative, the deacon bring the censor to Abuna and we see Abuna takes incense and put it on the bread and wine. Why? I told you as if the sins are collected in the censor. So Abuna is taking the sins and putting it on what? On the Lamb of God. Then he is the Lamb of God who carried the sin of the whole world. This reminds me in the Old Testament when a person offers a sin offering or a trespass offering, he used to bring the animal and put his head, his hand on the head of the animal and confess his sins. So his sins are transferred to the animal. Then the animal is killed. In the same way, when we confess our sins, our sins are transferred to be placed on the Lamb of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
then through his death, my sins, I forgive. How beautiful when you teach liturgical teaching in your lesson to include whether liturgical text or explaining liturgical rites, this actually will give enlightenment. So when you stand in the church and you see the deacon bringing the shorya, the censor to Abuna, and Abuna is taking the incense and placing it on the bread and wine, you understand what Abuna is doing. It's not something not understandable uh, for you. And the last point, number seven, your teaching should be comprehensive. Comprehensive means don't take one verse and make a lesson on this verse. Pope Shenouda wrote an article about the danger of using one verse. One of the heretics, Arius, he used one verse when the Lord said, my father is greater than I. And based on this verse, he said, then Jesus is less than the father. He is some way intermediate between God and the human being. And until now, Jehovah's Witness and the Mormon receive a belief that Jesus is a rank of the angels or Archangel Michael. They don't believe in the divinity of Christ. That's why we don't consider them Christian. If you want to study the divinity of Christ, you need to read all the verses about the divinity of Christ. That's what I mean by comprehensive. Protestant, for example, took the verse, just believe and you will be saved. Then they say, salvation is only by faith. And they did not take in consideration what St. James said, faith without works is dead. So they based their understanding of salvation on one verse. But if they put this verse, just believe and you will be saved, plus faith without works is dead, then they say the true faith is the working faith. Because faith without work is dead. So when you teach any lesson, try to read all the verses about this lesson. Try to read all what church fathers read, uh, wrote about this point. What is in the liturgy, liturgical text about this point? What's in the holy tradition about this point? In this way, your lesson will be comprehensive. Not relying on one verse or one quote. Nowadays, many people who claim to be patristic, they take one quote from Athanasius or one quote from St. Cyril and they take this quote out of the context and they make argument based on one quote. This is not right. If you want to study or to teach any uh, subject, you need actually not to rely on one quote, 
But what the church fathers wrote about these issues? Let me conclude by saying, uh, St. James said, we, the teachers, will receive a stricter judgment. And one of the things that the Lord spoke against very strongly is the sin of offending people, the offense of teaching. When you teach wrong teaching, wrong teaching is very offensive to God. St. Paul in Galatians chapter 1, he said, if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And he repeated again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what we have received, let him be accursed. So St. Paul said, if an angel came from heaven saying to you a wrong teaching, let him be excommunicated. Uh, the Lord said about the offense of teaching, if anyone offend my little brethren, it's better for him to have a millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the sea. We never heard the compassionate, the merciful, the kind, the loving Lord speak in this way. And he warned us, beware of false teachers. Beware of false teachers. The Bible say about them, they are wolves in angel clothing or sheep clothing. In Romans chapter 16, St. Paul spoke about the false teachers and said, Now I urge you, brethren, not those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Be careful. Be careful when you teach. Be careful to teach the truth. Nothing other than the truth. Knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.